2: Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. This
3: is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Employers generally have the power to set rules in the workplace and vaccination mandates for influenza and other infectious diseases have been commonplace in healthcare organizations for years. In addition, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has recently confirmed that employers can require workers to get vaccinated against COVID-19, although they may need to make reasonable accommodations due to a health condition or a religious belief. But that hasn't stopped some workers from filing lawsuits against employers requiring vaccinations. There are suits against Houston Methodist Hospital, the Los Angeles Unified School District, a sheriff's department in North Carolina, and a a detention center in New Mexico. Joining me is Eric Fellman, a professor of law, health, policy, and medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Tell us about this lawsuit filed by hospital employees against Houston Methodist Hospital.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's not much of a lawsuit from a legal point of view, I don't think, but it certainly expresses the frustration or anger uh, that we've seen, I think, for quite a while in the anti-vaccination community that's really come out in full force, I think, during COVID-19. So I take the lawsuit not so much as articulating a, a set of really complicated legal issues, though it does manage to raise one issue but much more a sign of of the distress and distrust of the medical establishment, as we've been seeing really over and over again over the past 15 months or so.
3: What are they alleging is the basis for their claim that the hospital shouldn't be able to tell them to get vaccinated?
4: So the claim they spend the most time on is un- unfortunately, I think from their perspective, the one that's likely to get the least sympathy from any court that's actually focused on the law. And that's the claim that they are, they being those who are being required to be vaccinated are basically the same as uh, people who would be subject to medical experimentation. And the analogy that's drawn very sharply in the lawsuit. Is that this is akin to the medical experimentation by the Nazis on those who were in the concentration camps. And of course, those notorious medical experiments, which were uh, litigated and brought to light during the Nuremberg trials involved people who were involuntarily confined and on whom treatments, quote unquote, were tried that had absolutely no data. And the things that were done to the prisoners were absolutely horrific. The litigants here, the lawyers are claiming what we have is a group of individuals who are being forced against their will to subject themselves to this untested vaccine. And and that's just wrong scientifically. And I think it's wrong morally and it's wrong legally. There's a distinction that's not drawn in this Lawsuit between mandatory vaccination and compulsory vaccination. Compulsory vaccination literally is holding people down and jabbing a needle in their arms and forcing them to get vaccinated against their will. Mandatory vaccination isn't forcing anyone to get vaccinated. Nobody in the Houston hospital has to get vaccinated. They have options. And if they choose to not get vaccinated, depending upon their reason, they may find themselves put in a different position in the hospital. They may find themselves unemployed, but that's different than forcing them to get the so that's the weakest of claims here.
3: And what's one of the stronger claims made in the lawsuit?
4: The stronger claim made in this lawsuit, and and it's an issue that's been batted about on legal blogs and others, is whether or not the fact that the COVID-19 vaccines that are currently authorized to be used in the U.S. are authorized under emergency use authorization, whether the EUA status of these vaccines means that they cannot be mandated. And it gets into really the, the regulatory weeds here, but there's a section of the regulations about the emergency youth authorization that discusses the requirements that people who are receiving a vaccine approved under emergency youth authorization have to be told about the consequences of accepting and not accepting, et cetera. And that's been read by some and not inappropriately as suggesting that uh, EUA vaccines cannot be mandated. And others say there's really nothing about the language in the regulation that would mean that mandates were illegal or inappropriate. And so that's where the legal fight is.
3: Wearing a mask became a political issue, and now vaccines are becoming a political issue. Are there any political motivations behind these lawsuits?
4: One thing about the Houston Lawsuit I think really underscores the degree to which one needs to look at this as a, a political statement or or a um, sort of an ideological folly rather than a a really serious effort at legal articulation. the The lawyer who's representing the plaintiffs against Houston Hospital is a gentleman named uh, Jared Woodfill. He was chair of the Republican Party in Houston for over a decade and has recently been involved in the Stop the steel litigation. So he's someone with an ideological agenda, and fair enough, these people have ideological agendas. But I I think the lawsuit here is really uh, much more about putting that agenda into the courts, bringing the agenda to the public through media attention and through interviews like these than it is a serious effort at lawyering.
3: When the FDA completes the process of approval for the vaccine, will the basis of this lawsuit then disappear?
4: I think when, you know, the FDA is expected to provide, uh, full approval of the vaccines at some point in the fall. I think no one's quite sure exactly when, but I believe both Moderna and Pfizer have approved, have applied for full approval. At the point at which the vaccines receive full approval, I think a lot of the steam behind these lawsuits is, is likely to disappear because it's going to be really tough to make any claim at all about, uh, the language and the regulation of emergency youth authorization being relevant anymore. That may not stop the lawsuits. There have been plenty of lawsuits around vaccine mandates uh, that did not involve EUA. But the novelty of the COVID-19 vaccine is that it is approved under EUA, and so it would be the first or is the first vaccine under EUA that various entities, universities, uh private businesses hospitals etc have been mandated so it's really the eua issue that's been the focus once that's gone i think those who are bringing lawsuits are going to have to find a different basis on which to make their claim
3: many employers and institutions have apparently received letters threatening lawsuits against vaccination mandates does the threat of a lawsuit stop a lot of employers from mandating vaccines
4: yeah, so there, there has been a, a fairly well-coordinated national effort, I think, uh, driven by several organizations that are uh, strongly objecting to the idea of the COVID-19 vaccine mandated to find sympathetic lawyers and law firms around the country to bring these claims to the courts. And so you have a, a series of lawsuits that would percolate around the country making similar arguments. And I think the hope is, and 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 it's not a bad political strategy. Uh, The hope is that's going to serve to dissuade those who might otherwise have mandated the vaccine to back off. Uh, And I think there's probably uh, some truth to that, that nobody likes to be sued, uh, particularly uh, to the degree that one is being sued by by one's employees. I, I think what you end up seeing is a deterioration of workplace morale. You have workers who are unhappy. You have divisiveness between the workers who say they wouldn't go to work unless everyone was vaccinated versus those who say, I'll never get vaccinated. You have arguments about privacy, about freedom, about fundamental values. So even without the lawsuits, I think most employers most of the time would prefer to see everybody embrace the idea of vaccination without a mandate. Uh, but in a variety of settings, let's say airlines would be an obvious one, cruise ships would be another, academic institutions and medical institutions, certainly another, uh, relying on volunteerism, while it would be nice, probably isn't enough. So, you know, University of Pennsylvania Hospital, the hospital where um, at the university where I work, has mandated vaccines for faculty and staff. I believe that's uh, going to be increasingly the trend Across the country, just as hospitals have mandated the influenza vaccine for faculty and staff, Uh, universities are increasingly mandating it. But businesses, I think, if they can find ways of mandating it and uh, happily stay out of the courts, are likely to probably uh, go in that direction rather than the direction of a vaccine mandate.
3: Have there been lawsuits against the hospitals or universities who mandate the influenza vaccine?
4: There have been lawsuits, and uh, I think the law has been pretty clear since the beginning of the 20th century that there's a strong public health justification for mandating vaccines, and that's been the case in schools, that's been the case in communities more broadly. And so while there has been litigation, that litigation has generally failed. Um, Just, just, I think, to to add one more point to to the question you raised a second ago, Uh, there are some schools in the University of California or Cal State system, I think is a good example of one, that uh, I suppose with an eye towards avoiding litigation that they would find to be bad publicity, time-consuming, and expensive, have said that the vaccine is, the COVID-19 vaccine is required of students, faculty, and staff once the FDA provides full approval of the vaccine, but not before. So they're sidestepping, I think, thoughtfully and, and cleverly the possibility of litigation based upon the emergency use authorization of the vaccine and saying we will mandate it, but not until it's fully approved because we're, we're pretty confident that we're on strong legal ground, even if we were to mandate it sooner, but we know we're on very firm legal ground if we put it off. And so putting it off has been the UC strategy and is increasingly the strategy I think at some other institutions.
3: The EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, recently confirmed that employers can require workers to get vaccinated. Does that carry any weight in a lawsuit, the EEOC's recommendation?
4: The You know, it, it's going to depend upon the state. There, there are a variety of states, that have uh, either through executive order or legislative action or both passed laws that prohibit uh, vaccine mandates. Or Certainly, if they don't prohibit the mandate, they prohibit the enforcement of the mandate by telling employers, uh, both private and public, that they cannot ask anybody to demonstrate or provide proof that they've been vaccinated. And if they do, for example, in Florida, uh, they're subject to a fine of up to $5,000. So I think in a place where there's a state law, that state law is likely to override uh, the federal guidelines here from the EEOC. That said, there are lots of states that don't have those laws. And also that said, I think the EEOC's guidance is really important because uh, it didn't just say it was okay to mandate vaccines uh, uh, by employers. It it said that mandating the vaccines in most circumstances Uh, would not be a violation of GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, uh, or of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination based upon race and religion and other categories, or of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, And then it also spoke in some detail about the kind of incentives that employers could provide to employees so that they could nudge people towards getting vaccinated without mandating vaccines. And, And that, I think, has become an increasingly important way of getting people vaccinated without requiring them to be vaccinated. Offer them money, offer them a day off, offer them some sort of a perk.
3: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Eric Feldman
1: of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight.
5: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
4: Stiefel, Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: The Biden administration's decision to defend former President Donald Trump in a defamation lawsuit over his rape denial surprised many and angered some. In a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland, the House Judiciary Committee called the decision misguided and demanded that the Justice Department reverse its decision to defend the case. The Justice Department's court filing strongly backed Trump's assertion that his calling advice columnist E Jean Carroll a liar in 2019 after she accused him of raping her in the 1990s was an official act shielded from lawsuit. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Start with telling us about this law that would allow former President Trump to dodge a defamation lawsuit.
6: So it's a uh, it's fairly obscure law that doesn't pop up a lot uh, in the news, but it's called the Westfall Act of 1988. Um, what it does is it protects federal employees, government employees, um, from litigation against them, civil lawsuits um, filed against them that relate to their job duties, so one example that pops around a lot is, you know, a USPS mail carrier, you know, crashes a, a, into a, a car and gets sued by the occupant of that car. This is the type of law that would get that suit thrown out because they it would make the United States government essentially the defendant rather than the individual. So
3: the position of the Trump administration was that his alleged defamation of Eugene Carroll would fall under this law. What did the government? argue why did they think that this applied to Trump in this case?
6: So the Trump administration argued that when Eugene Carroll accused him in 2019 of raping Toro two decades ago and then defaming Carroll by denying it, uh, the government argued that the president should be removed from the lawsuit and that the United States government should be the defendant in the case instead, because under the Westfall Act, they argued, Trump was uh, carrying out a presidential duty of, of some sort by denying the claims made by E. Jean Carroll. And as part of that that motion, if the government is substituted for Trump, then essentially the case is over, the case is dismissed, because you can't sue the government for defamation.
3: So this was litigated. Tell us what the lower court judge decided in the case and why.
6: So in October, the federal court judge uh, in Manhattan disagreed with the Trump administration and ruled in favor of E. Jean Carroll and said that Trump was not carrying out a presidential duty when he denied her allegations and essentially accused her of lying, of making this up for political purposes, um, claiming that she had made similar allegations against other men, um, which wasn't actually true. And it also said, frankly, that she wasn't his type, or to use his words. So he came out pretty strongly uh, denying Ms. Carroll's claims, and uh, she accused him of defamation. And when the government tried to have uh, the case thrown out under the Westfall Act, the federal judge just disagreed, and now uh, there's an appeal underway. The appeal was filed before President Biden was elected. Uh, So when he won, the judge said, well, let's wait and see what the Biden administration has to say about whether or not the Westfall Act applies to this case. So everyone in the case was just waiting to see what uh, Merrick Garland, DOJ would say. And this was sort of a surprise when they came out with the exact same argument that the Trump administration had.
3: Not only a surprise, but it's really caused a lot of consternation, so much so that the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee just sent a letter to Merrick Garland to ask them to change their position. Let's talk about what might be behind this, because during the campaign, Biden criticized the DOJ intervening in the case. Now, the White House says it wasn't consulted by justice on the decision to file the brief or its contents. Is the Department of Justice trying to make a point about its independence here?
6: Well, I don't know if they're trying to make a statement about it, but it certainly does suggest that uh, the DOJ is coming up with their their own argument here that is different from what Biden said on, on the campaign trail. So Biden said that he was going to keep the DOJ at arm's length. He wasn't going to try to use it as a personal law firm, as he accused Trump of doing. So the fact that they have the president and the DOJ have a, different views on this uh, could be explained as just the DOJ doing what it does. Of course, others see it as, as the DOJ trying to protect the Office of the Presidency at the expense of other people who might want to sue the president, but we we, we really don't know. We, we can say, though, that as the DOJ pointed out under both Trump and Biden, that the Westfall Act has been applied to previous presidents, um, including uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, uh, George W. Bush. So it's not unusual for lawsuits against presidents to be dismissed under this law. What E. Jean Carroll and her lawyers say is that it's just not the same. The cases against other presidents and other federal employees are much more related to something pertaining to their job duties um, as federal government employees. And that publicly denying uh, a rape allegation from 20 years ago doesn't fall under any kind of duty. Uh, so, so that's why I think E.G. Carroll and her lawyers thought that they were going to get Biden's DOJ on their side But it doesn't turn out that way. The DOJ is is putting a very, applying this very broadly, um, not just to Biden, but future presidents as well.
3: Eric, the law has also been used to block a wrongful death and defamation lawsuit against former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And the language by the D.C. Federal Appeals Court was pretty broad.
6: That's right. Um, This was a case that was filed. Against Hillary Clinton by uh, two family members of two individuals who were killed in that um, attack on the U.S. facility in Benghazi, Um, they accused her of defaming them. They also accused her of of causing the wrongful death of their loved ones by allegedly sending sensitive information about that facility over her uh, private email server. Um, So, you know, this case was thrown out under under the Westfall Act. Um, The judge. Um, and the Federal Appeals Court agreed that uh, this related to, all of this related to Hillary Clinton's duty as Secretary of State, and that that's precisely what uh, the Westfall uh, Act was passed for, Um, and you're correct, I did say the Federal Appeals Court in Washington did use very broad language, uh, saying that there was extensive precedent, had made it clear that alleging a federal employee violated policy or even laws in the course of her employment, including specific allegations of defamation or potentially criminal activities, does not take that conduct outside the scope of employment. Kind of a long quote, but it really does show how broadly the Washington Appeals Court uh, interpreted that. Of course, the case we're talking about is now before the Second Circuit in New York, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how how their decision comes down on it.
3: Is Trump raising a similar defense in lawsuits against him over the Capitol insurrection?
6: Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, he he is. And uh, the the DOJ hasn't come down with, um, with uh, any sort of determination on that yet. But I think that there are are people who are concerned, you know, we quoted one of them in in, in one of our stories saying that they were very concerned by this broad um, interpretation. Um, And it's, It's interesting too because you could see how the argument from both sides would apply to this case as well. Um, The difference being in this case, uh, the president, uh, then President Trump, was making comments that really were directly related to um, an election that had just happened, uh, related to his election. Um, Obviously, we know what happened uh, when people took what he was saying literally and believed. his his lies about the election being stolen um, but you know clearly they're going to argue that this was just his job as president he was just making commentary as presidents do and the other side is going to argue he went way too far that inciting an insurrection surely is not what congress intended when they passed the Westfall Act uh, so again it's a it's going to be another test of, of this this law
3: I want to talk a little bit about the lawyer who is representing E.G. Carroll in her lawsuit against Trump, Roberta Kaplan, because you did a story on her. First of all, tell us a little bit about her and and her background.
6: Yeah, so Robbie Kaplan, uh, she uh, is a a civil rights lawyer. Um, She is one of the uh, lawyers who helped pave the way for the legalization of um, same-sex marriage. Um, in the Supreme Court, she argued the case that overturned uh, the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, so she also helped campaign for Hillary Clinton, um, knows her, and, and, and she was confident that she was going to win and perhaps get a job at the Justice Department. Of course, that didn't happen. So she, left, um, she had left her, her job at Paul White, where she'd been for over two decades, and uh, instead of going to work for the Justice Department under Hillary Clinton, Decided to found her own law firm, so that's what she did. Um, and they've been taking on, the, uh, you know, a lot of very interesting cases. Eugene Carroll's case is one of them. Uh, they're also representing Trump's niece, Mary Trump, in her fraud lawsuit against the president, accusing him of of ripping her off or millions of dollars. Um, They're also running a lawsuit. uh, One of the first lawsuits they filed was against some of the organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville that led to so many injuries and deaths, and that's potentially going to trial in October. Uh, But on top of that, they're doing all kinds of regular commercial work as well and looking for big Wall Street clients and, and Fortune 500 companies. Things like that, doing uh, commercial work, white collar crime, uh, representing companies in congressional investigations, and things like
4: that.
3: So she's attracting a lot of in-demand young lawyers because of the public interest work that she does, or just because of the nature of the firm.
6: Well, she says that it's both. These are she describes their their lawyers they're hiring as um, you know very talented younger lawyers who. Um, are very interested in public interest work, the kind of uh, work that they're, they're putting at the center of their firm, but also want to, um, you know, get involved in uh, in, in corporate litigation, um, the kind of the kind of legal work that's so common in, you know in New York Wall Street related stuff. So really, the, what they're telling lawyers they they can work on both um, both types of of law here and, and thrive doing both. That's that's how they pitch it to their.
3: Thanks for being on the show, Eric. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm
0: June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download
2: it wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
2: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q and